fabricate, verbal fabrication. Again, here's another skillful use of fabrication, which is to bring the body into jhana. First jhana. Furthermore, quite withdrawn from sensual pleasures, withdrawn from unskillful mental qualities, you enter and remain in the first jhana. Rapture and pleasure born from withdrawal accompanied by directed thought and evaluation. There's the verbal fabrication. Now the rapture and pleasure would come under the feeling. The topic of your meditation would come under perception. All states of jhana are up through nothingness or, or perception attainments. So then you take that sense of rapture and pleasure and you permeate and pervade, suffuse and fill this very body with a rapture and pleasure born from withdrawal. I love this image. Just as if a skilled bathman or bathman's apprentice would pour bath powder into a brass basin and knead it together, sprinkling it again and again with water so that his ball of bath powder, saturated, moisture-related, permeated within and without, would nevertheless not drip. Even so, the meditator permeates this very body with a rapture and pleasure born of withdrawal. There's nothing of your entire body unpervaded by rapture and pleasure born with withdrawal. And as you remain thus heedful, ardent, and resolute, any memories and resolves related to the household life are abandoned. And with their abandoning, your mind gathers and settles inwardly, grows unified and centered. Okay, this is a skillful use of verbal fabrication. You think about the breath, you evaluate the breath. Once you've got that sense of ease, you think about letting it spread and permeate and fill and suffuse his whole body. So you're taking the feeling of pleasure, you're creating a new perception that your body is like a ball of bath powder. And you're going to suffuse it with water, with moisture. And then you sit there and you apply that perception to your body. So it's verbal fabrication and mental fabrication applied to oftentimes the breath as the topic for meditation. So this is another explanation of why the Buddha taught jhana as part of his path. Because it's a skillful use of verbal fabrication and then brings in the other forms of fabrication as well. I've always thought it interesting to reflect on the fact that of the eight factors of the Eightfold Path, which one did the Buddha discover first? Yes? Four? Four. Fifty-one. <laughs> so he discovered jhana first. Remember, he was going through that period of austerities and realizing austerities are just not where it's at. And I've always this to me. This is one of the most inspiring parts of the Buddha's uh, biography. One, there's the inspiring part where he, you know, he looks at his pleasures as he's living in the palace, and he realizes this is going nowhere. I've got to find a deathless pleasure. Now, can you man- imagine Paris Hilton coming to that realization? <laughs> Michael Jackson. I mean, any of these people who are really rich and got everything and realizing, okay, there's nothing here at all. It's time to find a better, a better basis for happiness. Okay, making that decision to go out into the wilderness, that took a lot. And so I find that inspiring. But the other point is where he gets to the end of his austerities. Now, here he's been practicing austerities for six years, doing without food almost, you know, stopping his breathing, passing out every time he goes to the bathroom. And what keeps a person going through that kind of austerity, through that kind of torture? 
is intention, but what's what's feeding is intention, keeping it going. Desire. Pride. There's a lot of pride that goes along with austerities. Nobody else, as he said, I don't know of anybody else who ever went this far with austerities. There's a comparing mind there already. There's a lot of pride. And he was willing to see at that point, okay, this is not working. He was able to abandon his pride, which I think is sometimes harder than abandoning your sensual pleasures. There was peer pressure from the five five brethren, yeah. They were watching, when's he, when's he going to gain his awakening, when's he going to tell us? And so he had, to, you know, he had to put up a good show for them, too. And then he realizes this is not working. And then he reflects, and when he was a child, you know, he, had that st- he entered the first John at that time when he was sitting under the tree while his father was plowing. And the question arose in his mind is, could this be the way to awakening? And the answer that came up is yes. So that's the first of the eight pack factors that he developed and that he discovered in the Eightfold Path. Realized, okay, John is, is the way to awakening. Lee, remember that point of your Dharma talk. <laughs> okay. Um, while we're at it, I've got a few minutes to tell you a story. Um, there was a king in Thailand. I'll try to make this short as possible. The Burmese forces had invaded Thailand, <clears throat> and this king was going to go out and meet them. And so they were going to have a sneak attack in the morning, and they got on their elephants. <laughs> a sneak attack on your elephants. And they got, out be- they got out before dawn on their elephants, and they went into the Burmese camp. And the king was such a good elephant rider that when he, the dust settled, and he looked around, and all of his troops were way, way, way away. He'd, he'd outrun them. He really was alone in the Burmese camp. And so I mean, he could have easily been snuffed out. But his wits were about him, and he saw the Bur- Burmese viceroy, and he challenged him to a one-on-one duel. He says, the days of one-on-one duels are almost going to be passed now. Let's do last, one last one-on-one duel. And so it was a matter of pride, so the Burmese viceroy agreed to the one-on-one duel. So they charged each other on the elephants, and the, the Thai king you know, killed the Burmese viceroy. And just as he had done that, then his troops showed up, and so the Burmese scattered. And um, I understand that the new military government in Thailand has sponsored a film based on this incident. <laughs> But um, when the king got back to the ca- capital, he was furious with his troops for not keeping up with him. And so he was going to behead a couple of generals just to teach these guys a lesson. And fortunately, there was an old monk who was um, the head of what they called the forest sect back in those days. And he asked to have an audience with the king. So the king came out to see him. And the monk said, you remember the Buddha? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> And not just in general terms. He says, when the, Buddha, when the Buddha gained his awakening, how many other people were around? There's nobody. Because the five brethren had left him in disgust after he stopped his austerities. He said, would his accomplishment be as memorable if the five brethren were still around? No, right? Okay. So he said, you are going to go down in history for having single-handedly beat the Burmese. Wow. <laughs> so the generals didn't have to die. <laughs> they let you. They let you do something really outstanding. Okay. So let's go. Let's re- re- 
resume verbal fabrication here. Okay. Now, verbal fabrication also comes under right resolve. Now, you've probably heard the standard definition of ordinary right resolve, which was resolve and renunciation, to be resolved on non-ill will, and to be resolved on non-harming. There's what's called transcendent right resolve. It's without fermentations or without asavas and a factor of the path. And this is defined as the thinking, the directed thinking, the resolve, the mental absorption, i.e. jhana, mental fixity, focused awareness, and verbal fabrications in one developing the noble path. Whose mind is noble, whose mind is without fermentations, who is fully possessed of the noble path. Okay, skillful verbal fabrications are a factor of the path. Particularly the verbal fabrications that go around with developing jhana. That's part of the transcendent path. So again, we have this pattern that eventually you're going, to, you're going to abandon fabrication, but before you abandon it, you turn it into the path by the way you direct your thoughts and the way you evaluate the object of your meditation. Any questions on jhana? Oh, lots of questions. Okay. Thanks. Um, about uh, directed thought and evaluation, mm-hmm. but I, I, I'm not sure I understand exactly how you're using it. I, I'm used to hearing it, uh, the, at least the evaluation part, and kind of a, uh, I mean, um, like like penetrating the penetrating the subject rather than any, any discursive, any logical or evaluate, mm-hmm. evaluative thing. And it sounds like you're talking about it in a, in a somewhat different way than you know, like the, the honey flower, the honey honeybee coming up the flower and then going into the flower. It sounds like you're talking about it in a different way, or maybe not. Maybe I'm just confused. It is different, but it. I mean, you're, you're getting involved in the breath. You're fully in the breath, but at the same time, you're asking yourself, as as, as the bathman's apprentice, okay, how do we suffuse the moisture through the ball of powder, and then how do we? get the sense of ease and rapture to permeate the body as a whole. There's a certain amount of evaluation that has to go in there. One saying, okay, is it comfortable enough? Is this sensation I've got right now comfortable enough that I would want to spread it? And then you get up with against the issue, okay, sometimes it doesn't want to spread. What do you do then? So there's a certain amount of strategizing, a certain amount of evaluating going on in that first jhana as you're working through trying to make the breath more comfortable and then once it's comfortable, how you spread it sensation of ease. And the word vichata in, in sort of ordinary sort of conversational poly does mean to evaluate. Um, I think actually that kind of clarified things a little bit. But just at a very coarse level then, um, kind of the mental conversation that's going along as you're attempting to um, become concentrated or whatever, that is mental fabrication. Right, right. It's verbal, actually a verbal fabrication. Yeah. Or, or verbal, I mean. And um, the, the, the uh, fabrication, I mean, to me, it carries a sense of, of uh, I guess what you've been saying all along, you, it, it's possible to collect these elements together to become, right. and that's kind of implicit in the word fabrication. You're, you're causing this to happen, collecting the correct right. elements. Because so. okay. it's not like we're getting back in touch with our true nature or anything like that. I mean, the Buddha never has any discussion of true nature or Buddha nature. Yeah, I mean, think if anybody was qualified to talk about Buddha nature, it would be the Buddha, right? <laughs> but he doesn't. I mean, what is his comment about the mind, he says, you see how variegated the animal world is? 
all these different kinds of animals. He said the human mind, any mind, is even more variegated than that. You're, you're capable of anything. So it's up to you. What do you want to create out of these powers that you have? And so in this case, we create a path. And so you have to be conscious of the fact that you are creating this. That there's going to be work involved. And sometimes it seems natural and other times it doesn't seem natural. But then that's just a question of habit. And you're trying to develop good habits so that we'll get come more and more and more easily to direct the mind in that way. But it's not a question of getting back to our true nature or anything. I, I think that somehow I was, you know, always carry that in my mind, back in my mind, that somehow it's stumbling across, across this um, nature that's there already, as right. opposed to just collecting it out of the stuff that's there and going and following it. So, right. and it's not like you know we haven't had experiences like this in the past. I mean, many times people will find as the mind really settles into strong concentration, like the Buddha. I mean, there was a memory when I was a kid. There were times when the mind would get into this state which is why it seems familiar and why it seems like we're getting back in touch with something we had lost. But what we lost, it was a good habit that we had lost. We're getting back in touch with that. Yes, in the back again. This question of true nature is a hornet's nest. Uh, but, um, but wouldn't you say that through practice in the Theravadan tradition, you, you come to uh, experience something uh, of the nature of reality? That's a different appreciation than you had before. The nature of self as anatta, the nature of reality as empty and insubstantial, uh, without reifying a true nature. Wouldn't you say that there is a, uh, an awakening to the, not just the way things work to cause and effect, but to the underlying nature of uh, of, of reality. Okay, well, you, what you come into, especially in experience of the deathless, is, is something that's really other, that's not involved in, in cause and effect. And you wouldn't want to say that you're, it was your true nature. It's just it's more of the like, discovery, okay, there is this as well. And if you start putting your, your true nature, any of those categories on top of it, you're getting in the way. Mm-hmm. In... in, in Zen, for example, we give names to it, like, like the birthless. Mm-hmm. And in Theravadan, we say the deathless. Mm-hmm. So it's a dimension of, of our nature that um, transcends coming and going, birth and death, mm-hmm. cause and effect. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Are, are we on the same? Would you agree? Yeah, well, there's the transcendence, yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But the, I mean, you run up when you use, start using that as a theory to explain things, that there's a true nature. Mm-hmm. You've got the problem is, okay, if you had this true nature, why did you lose it? And if you lost it once, what's to keep you from losing it again? Mm-hmm. Yeah. The epistemologies, I mean, w- we could play with this from a yeah. Mahayana and Theravadan yeah. point of view because I, I could respond to those mm-hmm. questions. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it's just, um, yeah, I think calling it true with a capital T and then contrasting it with the people who don't have it is, mm-hmm. that's really problematic. But, but it does seem to me that, uh, I mean, Experiencing, let's say, the deathless, isn't that uh, a liberation? Isn't that associated with, with liberation? That is liberation. Yeah. It is liberation. So, uh, and isn't liberation connected somehow with, with, with truth, with perceiving things accurately? Perceiving the Four Noble Truths accurately. Yeah. yeah. 
I just wanted to play a little bit with the dialogue. And, uh, okay. But the Buddha's assumption of what we're all bringing to the practice is, that, is there's no assumption that we're bringing a bad nature or a good nature to the practice. He's assuming that we're bringing the desire for, for happiness. Yeah, oh no, this has nothing to do with original sin. I, <laughs> nothing or at all. Or original virtue. I mean. Or original virtue, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, it's just, yeah. And he's assuming that we all want happiness, and that's, that's the assumption that it's all based on. Okay, we've got ten more minutes. I hear you getting restless. I'm getting restless too, but we've got ten more minutes. We've got to get through something, at least maybe half of the material. <laughs> okay. Okay. How you relate to feeling. When touched with the feeling of pain, the unobstructed run-of-the-mill person sorrows, grieves, and laments, beats his breast, becomes distraught. So he feels two pains, physical and mental, just as if they were to shoot a man with an arrow and right afterward to shoot him with another one. So he feels the pains of two arrows. Okay. As you're touched with that painful feeling, you're resistant. Any resistance obsession with regard to that painful feeling then obsesses you. Okay. Okay, this is, we're talking about people's normal reaction to pain. They get obsessed with resisting the pain, trying to push it away or escape it. Touched by that painful feeling, you delight in sensuality. Why is that? Because the uninstructed run-of-the-mill person does not discern any escape from painful feeling aside from sensuality. Underline that sentence, okay? Yeah. <laughs> this is why we go for sensual pleasures. We don't see any other escape from pain, okay? So as you're delighting in sensuality, any passion obsession with regard to that feeling of pleasure obsesses you. You don't discern as it actually is present, the origination, passing away, allure, drawback, or escape from that feeling. As you don't discern these things, then ignorance obsession with regard to that feeling of neither pleasure nor pain obsesses him. Sensing a feeling of pleasure, pain, or neither pleasure nor pain, you feel you sense it as though joined with it. This is called an uninstructed run of the person, joined with birth, aging, and death, with sorrows, lamentations, pains, distresses, and despairs. You are joined, I tell you, with suffering and stress. Okay, this, I mean, the basic thing we want to underline there is that you don't see any other alternative to pain aside from sensual pleasure, which is why we go for that particular kind of pleasure. So what you need to develop is an alternative form of pleasure. So you have another escape, so you don't have these obsessions coloring the mind all the time. Now, the well-instructed disciple of the noble ones, when touched with a feeling of pain, does not sorrow, grieve, or lament, does not be depressed or become distraught. So he feels one pain. Actually, I think it's when the Buddha talks about two arrows here, it's too few. <laughs> you know, you shoot a whole quiver. <laughs> now, the well-instructed disciple of the noble ones feels only one arrow, the feeling of the physical pain, but not the mental. Just as if they were shoot a man with an arrow and right afterward did not shoot him with another one, so you'd feel the pain of only one arrow. As you're touched by that painful feeling, you're not resistant. Okay, because you've seen that basically what this comes down to is through analyzing the way the mind relates to the pain. And particularly, there's a whole book on this topic. It's called Straight from the Heart by John Mahabua. It's a series of Dharma talks that he gave to a woman who was suffering from cancer. And he makes the point repeatedly that you want to see the distinction between the body, the pain, and the awareness of the body and the awareness of the pain. You've got three things, body, awareness, pain. And you see that these are actually three distinct things. 
what pulls them together are your perceptions. It said, this is my pain. This, my knee is in pain. Or my leg is in pain. And that's a series of labels that the mind places on it. Now, it's, it happens so quickly and it seems so true that we don't really realize that it's, we have an alternative. We don't have to apply those labels. When we don't apply the labels, then the pain can happen to the body, but there's no sense of it happening to me or that the pain and the body are one thing. When you can separate it out like that, okay, then you can be in this position where there's no resistance to the pain obsesses you. Okay, when there's no resistance to the pain obsessing you, you don't delight in sensuality. Why is that? Because you discern an escape from painful feeling aside from sensuality. Now, there are two escapes here. One escape is the escape going into jhana. And the other is the escape that comes from having done just that analysis. Realizing that even though there is a pain in the body, it does not have to pain the mind. You train yourself not to create the perceptions that are going to create the bridge there. So an important thing here is to learn how to get through those perceptions to say, this is my body, this is my pain. This is why the perception of anatta is so important. Why it's made such a big deal out of it. Because you are applying the perception, this is me, this is mine, to things. And in applying that perception, you're creating suffering. Okay, so you've got two escapes now. Because you have two escapes, you're no longer delighting in sensuality. So no passion obsession with regarding to a feeling of sensual pleasure assesses you. You discern as it actually has come into being. That's, that's the way that should be translated, by the way. The origination, passing away, allure, drawback, and escape from that feeling. As you discern these things, there's no ignorance obsession to obsess you. Sensing a feeling of pleasure, you sense it disjoined from it. Okay, you haven't created the bridge to it. Sensing a feeling of pain, you sense it disjoined from it. Sensing a feeling of neither pleasure nor pain, you sense it disjoined from it. This is called a well-instructed disciple of the noble ones, disjoined from birth, aging, and death, from sorrows, lamentations, pains, distresses, and despairs. You are disjoined, I tell you, from suffering and stress. Okay, this is how you do it. It's, the, it's an issue of perception. Your ability to be with pain and not to suffer from it relies on perception. As long as you say, this pain is mine, or it's happening to something that is me or mine, you've created the bridge for suffering to come into the mind. But if there's no bridge. Who's the other one again? Who? Mahabua. Let's see, M-A-H-A and then B-O-O-W-A. Ajayan Mahabua. I think you have it in the library here. Where's the librarian? Yeah, there should be some free copies for distribution here. Mahabua? B-O-O-W-A. Question? How do you navigate uh, this, the use of me and mine to cause suffer, as a cause of suffering mm-hmm. with what you mentioned before, the, the, the importance of, you didn't call it taking responsibility, but mm-hmm. realizing how we are implicated mm-hmm. as a precondition for real for liberation. Yeah. Okay. Um, it's skillful use of me and mine. <laughs> okay. 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 You don't just drop your me and mine right away. Right, right, right. Notice where it's skillful and where it's not. And this, I mean, this is throughout the 
the Pali Canon, where the Buddha says, you know, the self is its own mainstay, and who else is going to be? Right. Okay, you've got to learn how to rely on yourself. There are times when self, eye-making, eye-making and my-making, and seeing it as a kind of karma. And, and this is an important point, because the Buddha doesn't take a position of whether there is, a, there is a self or there is no self. He stays away from that issue. But he says, there is this process of I-making and my-making. And as in any other kind of karma, and this is what it is, it's a kind of karma, there's a skillful use of karma and an unskillful use of karma. And the Noble Eightfold Path is a way of developing a skillful use of karma that eventually puts you in a position where you don't need karma anymore. In the same way, it puts you in a position where you don't need to apply, you don't need to make an I or a mind anymore. But you learn how to use your eye and your mind skillfully along the way. Seems paradoxical in, in some ways. Yeah, well, basically, it's seeing it as karma rather than as a metaphysical position. I see. Okay, thanks. Yeah. Ajahn, um, we, were talking, we were talking before about the dispassion mm-hmm. and realizing you're creating. You realize your participation in the creation of it. Suffering, yeah. The suffering. And then you become dispassionate. What you were just talking about with the pain, Mm -hmm. that that way of working with the pain, Mm -hmm. is that another form of that? It's the same process. Okay, there's a pain in your body. You say, look, this is horrible. There's this pain in my body that's making me suffer. And the question is, well, is it making you suffer or are you in getting yourself involved in the pain in such a way that's going to cause suffering? So that's what you've got to look for. To, hmm? what? You can do it with anything, yeah. To see what you're doing that's ad- adding to the suffering. In fact, that's the primary focus with the whole issue of suffering. It's this element of fabrication, i.e. your intentions. What are your intentions involved in here? Now this, I mean, we're talking now just about making an I or mine as a kind of karma. I mean, you identify this body as yourself because this is the body you're responsible for. This is the body you're going to use to go down to the store to buy things, to come back and fix whatever, you know, whatever. But at the same time, if you hold on to the body as I or mine all the time, it's going to turn on you. So if you, instead of seeing that the eye and the mind is something that's sort of really there, it's sort of built into reality, you realize that this is a label that you've imposed on things as a part of a strategy. And you can remove the label anytime you want. Learn how to make your mental labels post-it notes. (laughs) So they don't really stick. And you can peel them off when, when you find that they're no longer useful. That's a lot of what we're doing here. How do you know when it's more useful to practice concentration versus analysis or dissection? Well, there's, if you're in a position where you can choose, <laughs> I'd say go for the concentration first. Get it really solid. And then if you bring up an issue and you find that your concentration has been destroyed, put the issue back down again. Go back to your concentration. And then when you find that, okay, bringing it up doesn't destroy your concentration, then you can run with it as far as you need to go. There's no, the Bodhi doesn't create a clear line between concentration and insight practice. Basically, he told his monks, go and do jhana. And he said that the prerequisite for doing jhana is some insight and some tranquility. You need a modicum of both just to get the mind really concentrated. If you don't understand the way the mind fabricates things, you're not going to be able to get the mind into the first jhana. 
Okay, once you've gotten it there, you find that you've got a stronger basis that you can analyze things in more detail, more refined. So his basic, you basically you learn by trial and error. Okay, is this going to destroy my concentration? If the answer is yes, put it down. So we'll come back to that later. Now there also be, you know, issues come up in life and you don't have the choice. You've got to deal with the issue. In which case, you know, you, you take whatever insight and whatever concentration you've got and use it for that purpose. The analogy I think I can sometimes use is, you know, you you know you're not strong, but you need to push something. And you're not going to wait until you go down to the gym and get all nice and strong and come back and push. You've got to push it now. So you take whatever strength you've got and you push it. Okay, it's 2.30. It's time for a break. Come back in, what, 15 minutes, 20 minutes? How long does it take people to break in this? this Break things very quickly. (laughs) Uh, 20 minutes, okay.